Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Making of Yes Men. We as humans are built to follow, and if you don't believe me, then go hang out for a day in your local junior high school. We are incredulous, though, when we think of an entire nation like Nazi Germany going along with the mindless atrocities, and yet we are just as prone to mindlessly following the leader. The question for our souls is this, who is going to be the leader that we follow? May it be Christ and Christ alone. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. There's certain messages I'm really excited to give. This is not one of them, and I, I'm not exactly sure. I have, I've actually tried to negotiate with God just for me to do a different message this morning. And it's not because there's a problem with the message. There's something innately challenging about this particular message for me. And it's hard to describe. And if we live in a generation of such perversion in the church of Jesus Christ, to the point where many of us have struggled with cynicism, that if someone takes a strong stand, especially on a moral front, that means they're usually covering up immorality. In fact, as the old adage would go, the stronger a stance you take, then the more likely it is that you're trying to cover something up. And that is a false form of reasoning. However, many of us have experience that would back up such reasoning. And as a result, it makes it very difficult as a leader today to take a stand. Think about it. If that permeates the culture's mindset, well, then what is it saying to every leader? Just be quiet. Otherwise, everyone's going to assume that you're covering up something. And so to defy that and to actually speak forcibly, even knowing that someone may think that, is a tremendous challenge of soul because we are responsible as the saints of God to bring to bear upon the generation in which we live the truth, to do it lovingly, to do it with kindness, but to not be namby-pamby in the fact that there is only one truth and there's only one way to be saved. It's just the way it is. And therefore, because we love, we must speak. And so this particular one, there's some challenging issues over the beginnings of Ellerslie. You'll notice that there were certain moments, certain sermons, if you've been here from the beginning, where I was having to address uh, some failure in the leaders of the church. But I I think it affects me more than even you guys. I I feel a holy trembling in my soul as I walk through things. And ironically, this message was put together not because I wanted it to. I had three different messages I was working on this week, and all three of them were sort of staring me back in the face. I had them all on one page, one real extremely long document. And I would scroll down through it, and I'd be like, God, what does all this have to do with, I mean, are these just three different messages? Are these, like, supposed to be one message? Because I don't see how they fit together. And... In a sense, they've all been woven together today, which makes me feel all the more uncomfortable because I had three different messages, three different key ideas, and they all sort of got melded together into this. <laughs> and I, I, I think I sent an email to Sandy this morning saying, I'm not feeling very comfortable with this message, which means that God is probably going to do something in the message to tie it together even for me. Because I'm touching on things that are just they're uncomfortable for me. And if any of you walked in my shoes, you'd probably understand why. Uh, But I think it's important. And even meditating upon these things was an an incredible process for me this week. But 
we have failure in the church, but not just in its leaders. We're just weak. We're not a strong rendition of the body of Christ throughout history. And I'm including myself in that, okay? I'm not just trying to say, oh, in all of you. We are just not that impressive. And I'm not trying to criticize us. It's just sort of like, let's just figure out where we're at and then let's grow up. It's like if you're acting like a two-year-old and you're 20, let's just say, hey, buddy, you're acting like a two-year-old. You're supposed to be 20. That's sort of the way I feel about the church. It's like we are acting younger than we should. We have 2,000 years of foundation underneath us, and yet we are behaving uh, like a two-year-old. We need to grow up. We need to begin to move past some of the basic things that we're tripping over. And part of that has to do with how we handle leadership in the church, how we handle church structure. So many of us have been wounded. So many of us, I mean, maybe we've come out of cult environments, very controlling environments. Maybe we've uh, come out of environments where there is no leadership, whether that's our own home and our family, like our parents just were sort of passive and didn't really give us any discipline and direction. Whatever side of the spectrum you come from, we oftentimes flail about. And we have a tendency, if we didn't have any governance when we were growing up and we really wanted someone to, to discipline us, just tell me what I can and I can't do, then we have a tendency to go to the opposite extreme, to someone who controls us and someone who literally dictates every thought we have. And then if you grew up in a very controlling home, you have a tendency to gravitate towards whatever would be the least controlling environment imaginable, and it's just sort of a free-for-all. Whatever you feel like you want to do, well, then do it. We don't give you any governance around here. As the church, how are we supposed to function? And so that's part of what I'm getting close to in this message, which is just awkward. It's sort of like being a man, which I am, and preaching about the role of women. It's just like, hey, bucko, it's not, you're not a woman. How can you tell women what to do? That's a good point. Or being a, a man who is uh, <clears throat> Anglo-Saxon and telling uh, African-Americans how they should treat us and how they shouldn't have a bad attitude about their position in a culture. Well, that's about as bad of an idea as you could ever have. That's sort of the way I feel in this message. It's like, well, how in the world do you address it from my angle? Well, I'm not trying to address it from my angle. Preaching is not necessarily just from the angle of the preacher. It's from the angle of God. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to say, this is what the Word of God says. So, I am going to enter into a territory that is a little uncomfortable, but I think you will find it to be very refreshing by the time we get through it, if we make it through it. The making of yes men, understanding the principle of human control. I don't even know that I like my name being associated with that title. Well, that sounds like a very fun message, doesn't it? Who wants to listen to that? Well, when we hear the word yes men or yes man, that's a, that's a pretty low-level individual. doesn't really have his own brain. He just says yes to whatever's being asked him so that he can gain position, typically. Like in the workforce and in the business environment, a yes man is the one that makes everyone else in the business mad because he's always the one sort of saying, yes, I'll do that. I'll, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He doesn't have a brain of his own. It's like, hey, you should appeal that. That's actually not even a good, good way to run this company. Except we've got this yes man running around that's making us all look bad. And so yes men can make people uncomfortable. There's no doubt about it. 
But most of us, as a general rule of thumb, when we see someone who's just brainlessly following someone else, we don't think very highly of them. And so there is something, we could call it a phenomenon of human control, that most of us, when we look in from the outside and we see people like in North Korea, we're like, what is wrong with them? Don't they have a brain? Well, they probably do. In fact, their IQ may be higher than yours, and yet they're being controlled. They're being controlled by disinformation and an entire regime that is laboring overtime to cause their thinking to end here, to take that thought and to make sure they conclude this. And it's the principle of how culture works. Culture is the great defining element for how you create what we could call yes-men. So what is a yes-man? According to the world's brightest, it's a person, especially a man, I mean, that does make sense, who always agrees with everything that someone says. And then I have a second definition. A person that will agree to anything, regardless of how crazy, stupid, dangerous, or even illegal it is. Now, most of us are looking at this, you know, we're of the conservative bent, and we're like, how horrible. <laughs> so let's keep progressing. A yes man is a controlled man, and by the way, most of us do not think highly about that. To be controlled by someone else seems like a very, very unhealthy thing to be. And so I'm going to ask a question. Is this a bad thing or a good thing? Now, as we get our thoughts out onto the table at the very beginning, because I'm about to go into the Word of God on this matter, which is a very interesting journey for all of us as we go through this, but the point is, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And I think most of us would probably conclude at the beginning, well, it's a terrible thing. And I'm not necessarily going to disagree with that. However, I'm going to bring something else to bear upon the discussion that is going to allow you to see something and I'm not going to say that a brainless idiot is a good thing, but I'm going to say that a yes man, could there be a positive version of it? The yes man gone bad. This is what most of us understand. When we hear about a yes man, this is the version we're usually thinking of. And so the three varieties of human control that lead to hell, both on earth and after death. If you are being controlled in your humanity, any of these three ways I'm about to mention, they lead to absolute destruction in your life, both in this lifetime and in the next. It's serious stuff. And it's very, very bad stuff. So if I were to ask you, so is this a good thing or a bad thing? It would be correct for you to say, that's a terrible thing. And I'd say, yeah, I agree with that. So here it is. First one, demon possession. A demon-possessed man is a yes man. <laughs> as strange as that is to say it, He's a yes man. Who's telling him what to do? The demon. And so demon possession, it's the slavery of greed. Oftentimes, someone, and there's various ways, I'm guessing, that people could become demon possessed. It's just sort of a disturbing thing to ponder, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Don't worry. However, usually it has to do with the desire for power, a desire for something that you don't have in and of yourself, so you trade out or you exchange out control over your life so that you can have fame, so that you can have power, so that you can have authority in this world. And as a result, you find yourself no, not actually in control and having power, but actually being controlled. And you become a yes man. Though everyone else in the culture may be bowing down to you, you are bowing down to something else. Hitler bowed down to what he called the voice. 
He was a controlled man. He was actually a yes man. I know that sounds completely bizarre, but the one who leads the yes man typically is a yes man unto something very, very dark, okay? And that's in the bad form of yes manness. So due to the craving for power, there is some disturbance or distortion or perversion that has taken place in the human life. And our simple statement could be what the demon says goes. And so the answer is yes, sir. Yes, sir, at every turn. Self-possession. Now, that's a, a funny way of saying it, but in other words, you are in control of your life. And there's, well, I don't want to give that away. Self-possession, usually we would say someone who is self-possessed is, that's a good thing. That's actually what most of us would say. They have a sense of confidence in who they are, and they're in control of their life. And yet, the opposite is actually true. Someone who is self-possessed or all about themselves is actually not in control of their life. They are actually being controlled by what the Bible would refer to as the flesh or the old man or the old nature. So therefore, what they actually are wanting to do, they can't do. But if their agenda is self-satisfaction, greed, lust, well, the enemy doesn't put any blockage between them and that, so it makes it appear as they're in control, as if they're in control of their life, when in actuality, they're a yes man. They're a yes man to the flesh, and what the flesh is asking, that craving, that appetite of their being is asking, they say, yes, sir, yes, sir, even to their own destruction. So it's the slavery of lust due to the craving for pleasure. You have a craving for pleasure, so what do you do? You give way to that slavery of lust. And and you literally have shackles on your wrists, shackles on your ankles. You go where lust takes you. You go where flesh appetite leads you. You're not in control of your life. You only think you're in control of your life. You're a yes man. So what I want, I must get, though it harm me and everyone around me. How many people that are addicted to drugs go through that exact thing? How many people that are addicted to sexual deviance go through that exact thing? Pornography. How many men destroy their marriages even knowing that their wife has said, if you ever look at that smut again, I'm out of here. And the man literally has no control over his life. And there he is repeating the crime, even in his mind going, I shouldn't be doing this. But he's a yes man. He is being controlled. Man possession. Now, this is the creepy one that I'm going to address probably more than any other today, and that's why this message is a little awkward. It's when a man controls your life, or not just a singular man, but a group. You see, we are, many of us, especially those that grew up in America, we understand political correctness. And that is a form of thinking or the form of a culture that actually will control you, where you will find yourself not saying things in certain situations because you know that the group would deem it wrong. And so it actually controls you. You are being controlled by men. And that sounds really strange. The Bible typically refers to it as the fear of man. And as a result, we do not do what we ought to do because we actually are concerned about what they, you ever heard that? They will think, well, who cares about they? You do. So do I. Why, why, why do we care about they? We don't even know who they is. If someone ever you know, stops us and says, by the way, who's they? It's they. I, I can't describe they. It's they. And you have a face in there. Every now and then it's like your aunt you know, pops up or this, this. You have these faces. 
But they're not a defined group. They're just they, and they control us. You see, we are being controlled, and sometimes we know exactly who they is. Yeah, my, my dad wouldn't let me do that. I mean, you're just right there. And if you could imagine if in, in an office situation where that is that very strong leader is there, you literally tremble at the opinion of that one person. And so what they command, I will do. This is what we could call the slavery of fear or due to the craving for approval. Because we desire to be approved, because we desire to, be, to belong, we submit to man control. And what we become is the classic definition of yes men. This is what most of us would understand a yes man to be, is someone who is being controlled by individuals. But I want you to also begin to realize that those of us that live in this culture that are unwilling to stand up and proclaim the clear message of Jesus Christ, oftentimes we refuse to do it or we will not do it because we are yes men to the culture. They're, the culture is saying, don't speak, don't say it, we'll penalize you, you know what's going to happen to you, you will be on the outs. You'll be on the outskirts of that which is popular and that which is liked in this community. If you say it, you know what will happen. And so we sit back down. We're yes men. So what they command, I will do. So now I'm going to do a very strange thing in this message, and I'm going to turn the tables on this. And I'm going to actually make a proposal that there is such a thing as a yes man gone right. That a man who says, yes, sir, there's actually a positive spin on it. In fact, I'm going to go as far as to say that the version of yes man that we know today in our world and that has been proven throughout history is actually a counterfeit for that which is true and real. In other words, the reason it disturbs us so much is because it's such a distortion and such a perversion of something that is actually right. The yes man gone right, the three varieties of human control that lead to <clears throat> heaven, both on earth and after death. This is going to sound very strange because human control, in other words, you being controlled has some positive uh, spin to it. You've got to be kidding me. Well, the more acquainted you get with the gospel, the more you're going to understand what this means. You are actually not in control of your life. You were not built by God to be in control of your life. You were built to serve. However, you were not built to serve the lusts of your flesh. You were not built to serve a demon. You were not built to serve Adolf Hitler. You were not built to serve just a man, a culture, a community, a business. You were meant to serve the living God. And so as a result, when this is distorted and we lose our reverence and our, the control of God over our life, we still fall under the control of something else. You see, we're being controlled. The question is, what is it that is controlling us? This is the yes man gone right. So first of all, remember the other one it was demon possession? You know that demon possession is a counterfeit? You are meant to be it's just a hard word to say, controlled. Because control in our mind has a negative spin to it. It means some type of devious end. When in actuality, it's sort of like driving a car. That car needs someone to drive it. Someone is going to drive it. If that car starts moving, someone's controlling it. It's the same with your life. If your life's going to even function on this earth, something's controlling it. Is it sin? 
darkness, death, or is it Jesus? So God possession, the indwelling of the Spirit, the power to live for God, to obey the truth, and to love as he loves. Listen to this line. What God says goes. Who's in control? God. Yes, sir. Whoa. Did Eric just say it or did I misinterpret? Did he just say that Christians are yes men? I did. Self-control. Remember the other one was self-possession? My life. My life. What I want to do, what I do. And you're actually not in control of your life then. Sin is. However, there's this concept, and it's called the fruit of the Spirit of all things, called self-control. Doesn't that sound like, I'm in control of my life? Well, that's not quite what self-control is. It's a very, very hard word to use because it leads us in the wrong direction. I'm in control of my life. Well, actually, no, you're not. However, this is a God fruit, and that is self is now controlled. Self is controlled by the Spirit of God. So that self can now control the body as it ought to be controlled. You see, before you have the Spirit of God and before you have God, your body controls you. And that is, you could call it body control, but we would call it self-possession. In other words, my life, it's about me and the flesh is ruling you. However, when God turns the tables, now he's in control of your body. And you are submitted to him. So self-control is you being controlled by God or self being controlled by God and then self being able to control the appetites of the body where you could tell your appetite, no, no, that's not an agreement with God who controls me, who controls this body. So self-control is the command of the inner man under the direct governance of the Holy Spirit, the power to take every thought captive, to bring the body into subjection, to let not sin rule any longer therein. That's just called Christianity, by the way. And so here's my little quote with it. What God wants to happen in your body, you oversee the implementation by the authority and power of the Spirit. Did you know that you're a yes man to the Spirit of God within your life? And did you know that your body becomes a yes man body? Where it says, yes sir. Who does it say yes sir to? Whatever you tell it to do, but why? It's because God stands behind you saying, and you will do it. You see, your body comes under the control of you who's now under the control of God in your body, and that's known as self-control. So that this body begins to function as it ought to function. Your body was meant to be under control. It was not meant to be out of control, doing whatever it pleases, whatever it longs for. That's still being controlled, but by sin. This is the control of a different nature. This is the control of heaven. Your body's going to be controlled, Who's controlling it? Man honor. Remember the other one, it was man possession. The classic Adolf Hitler. In other words, where some type of intimidation is at work and you are being controlled, whether it's in a family environment, whether it's a marriage, whether it's in a business, whether it's in a uh, civil sphere, whether it's a national level character that is leading, I don't, whatever it is, humans can exert authority in the wrong way. They can abuse that position of authority, and they can begin to manipulate and control. However, there is a positive rendition of this, and we will call it, instead of man uh, possession, we'll call it man honor. 
The power of God at work within a Christian to show love, respect, honor, proper submission, and deference to the ruling powers appointed over him or her. The Bible makes it very clear of how we're supposed to treat our parents, how we're supposed to treat our rulers, even Nero. How we're supposed to treat Nero, who is killing Christians. There is a way that we're supposed to treat them. However, the Bible also is very, very clear on the fact that if Nero ever asks you to violate the control of God over your life, that you will say, no, I'm controlled by one. You see, you're not controlled by Nero. However, you show respect and honor to him, and that's how God proves his control over your life. It's not that we just become some autonomous thing and go on some renegade mission to say, all authority is bad, stick it to the man. That isn't Christianity. Christianity honors the man. That's, I don't know if you guys know what that means, but honors the authority. It honors those in charge. It honors the position that you're put in. Even if they're a little odd and off base, if they are not asking you to violate your conscience, if they're not asking you, if they're not requesting you to violate what God is asking of you, you will submit. You ever heard of civil disobedience? You know that most great Christians throughout history have spent time in prison? What? It doesn't say in the Bible, go to prison. However, it does say, obey God over man. You see, God's control must trump man's control. If ever man's control trumps God's control, everything's fallen apart. If ever you begin to tremble more before the opinion of men instead of the opinion of God, your life begins to go out of whack. So submissive to man only so far as they don't violate the obedient relationship I have with God. So I will submit in any environment. Growing up, a child is to submit to their parents. If their parents are asking them to violate their conscience, then technically, even biblically, a child would be required to make an appeal to say, I don't feel that I can do that. Isn't that a strange thought? You see, we are responsible to be controlled by God first and foremost. You know what the Bible actually commands the, the Jews to obey the priests and to show honor to the high priest? It does. And yet, what did Peter and John do? Peter and John were brought in, flogged, and they were brought in to be told that they cannot preach any longer in the name of Jesus. And what do the priests even do? They lay before them that burden of conscience to say, hey, look, we're the ruling powers over you. God even tells you to submit to us. And they basically said, you choose for yourself. Is it better for us to obey you or God? If God is asking us to do something and you tell us not to, who should we obey? And they said, we will obey God. That is the biblical framework. Man has a role in this life. God does put us into authority positions where we are under authority, where we are above people. We must handle both of those the way Christ would and recognize that the goal of the body of Christ is not to control each other, but to be controlled by God Almighty. Surprise. This is quite a surprise. Boy, you weren't expecting that one. Jesus was a yes man. And some of you are offended by that. It's like, are you calling Jesus a yes man? I just did. Depends on obviously what our definition of a yes man is, isn't it? See, this isn't a derogatory term in the way I'm beginning to build it. I'm beginning to show you it's a man who knows how to say yes, sir, to his authority. Now, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. 
Why would he be under anyone's authority? He himself makes it clear that he came into this earth submitted to the Father. And so I'm just going to give you a quick little scriptural overview of that. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son, speaking of himself, can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he does, these also does, also does the Son likewise. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. What? Come on, Jesus, buck up, be a man. Have your own opinion on these things. He says, no, I'm a yes man. I only do that which my father tells me to do. Whatever he says, I say, yes, sir. If he doesn't tell me to do it, I don't do it. He did only that which his father was doing. He only spoke that which his father was speaking. Then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then shall you know that I am he. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. I speak that which I have seen with my Father, and you do that which you have seen with your Father. Ooh, sort of a low blow there. He's actually saying, your Father, the devil, you're following him. You're doing whatever he asks you to do. You're a yes man. I'm a yes man too, says Jesus, but I heed the Father. He is showing us how a human life ought to operate. He was the template. He was the pattern. You see, you will obey a father. Which father are you obeying? You will show respect and obedience unto a father. Which one are you obeying and respecting? Because God makes it very clear who you are to respect, who you are to obey. For I have not spoken of myself, But the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment which I should say and what I should speak. Believe thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. All right, hopefully you caught the drift there. Jesus was a yes man. The Bible doesn't call it a yes man. That's a cultural term. It's just a term we're using just to create a little discomfort in us as an audience as we're going through this message. See, the Bible has a different term for it, which we will go into in just a second here. However, I want you to fully begin to grasp the fact that what we would oftentimes deem weak-willed, weak-minded, is a counterfeit of something that is actually of the greatest strength and magnitude, and even Jesus Christ himself demonstrated it to perfection. Saying, yes, sir, we are all doing it, whether we realize it or not. You are saying yes to something at every turn in your life. Every time you say no to God, do you know that you're saying yes to something else? You see, you are agreeing with something. What you agree with and what you submit to is your master. You are proving it day in and day out. Is it your father the devil or is it your father in heaven? Because his will has been revealed through Jesus Christ. And he says, submit to my son. And then Jesus says, and what my spirit says goes. And where does the spirit go? He goes to the word of God, the Bible, and says, and this is what I'm asking you to do. You doing it? Well, You see, you're saying yes, sir, to something. Know you not 
that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. Okay, then it gives us two options, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were servants, that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. So being a yes man unto sin, you actually turned. You repented of that way, and you believed from the heart, and you became a yes man of heaven. You're a yes man. The two forms of yes, sir. Yes to sin, which is obedience unto the flesh, or yes to righteousness, which is obedience unto the spirit. So whatever your thoughts are on being a yes man, and I, I agree, like in certain environments, certain people are attempting to get the good favor of their boss or their teacher. And there's certain terms that are used for that that are not the most pleasant to bring up here. But they're attempting to gain favor in and through almost like a false yes sir. They may not even have respect. They may totally think it's a joke, but they want more money. They want a higher position. They want a good grade. And so it's part of the manipulative thing that they do. And yes, it's disgusting. However, there is a form of saying, yes, sir, that is marked by love, that is marked by respect, that is marked by honor, that is marked by selflessness, that is marked by the nature of God himself. God built us to say, yes, sir, but to the right thing. If we say yes, sir, to the wrong thing, our life goes down the toilet quick. In other words, you are a yes man. The question is, what kind of a yes man are you? The power of culture. Let's look at that word culture real quick. Uh, let's break it up in half on the, on the right side of the T. And then move the word on the left side of the, you know, from the, the U over. Actually, the T over. I don't know how I'm saying this correctly. And you end up with a word that isn't very fun to repeat in church. Cult. <gasps> oh no. Did, did that just go airborne? Cults. And we're, most of us don't really know what a cult is. We just know it's bad stuff. A cult, as most of us would understand, it would be a man-controlled environment. One that is led by human men or women. By the way, there's cults that are run by women. And it's manipulative, it's controlling, it's, clo it's a closed environment. We don't let anyone from the outside ever say anything in here. And it's a fearful environment. Bad things will happen to you if you ever think of leaving. And so we have this very interesting word called culture. What's funny, if I say culture, you don't have any problem with it. It's like, oh yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I like to fit into the culture. And what you don't realize is the culture is the extension of a cult. That's all it is. But that's because we have a negative concept of a cult. A cult is merely a group with a certain described behavior of it. And then the culture is that behavior. It's the expectations. It's what happens to you if you obey and what happens to you if you disobey. It's the culture. And so we establish rules within a culture, a standard of excellence. This is the right behavior in our culture. And then you applaud those who are politically correct, and you boo those who are not. You build crosses for those who are not, and you build crowns for those that are. This is how culture works. However, what if the culture is wrong? 
What if its value system is haywire? What if it isn't based on God's mind? Well, it's a pretty dark scene. Culture. The spoken or unspoken rules of the cults or group. I gave you the extra word group just because I know. That's just an uncomfortable word. And a group is not just, it can be an individual, by the way. It can be one man, one woman with a defined prerogative and a, and a defined idea of how everything's going to work. But it could also be an entire society. You could call the American society a culture. In fact, we do. We have something called a pop culture. And if you are young, especially junior high, high school, but it even goes all the way down to elementary school, there is a defined cool. And if you are not in that, I remember the pressure. Oh, talk about weight. Back when I was young, my mom would go to Sears to buy my jeans. And I don't know if they still sell tough skins. But tough skins are literally the ugliest pant on earth. They had a, they had a patch. Patches are a big no-no. But they had a patch that went like right from the knee down to the shin. And you could see it. It's like, you've got to be kidding. My mom would come home, Eric, I got you some new jeans. No way am I wearing those, except for a high squeaky voice. And so everyone that was cool had Levi's. In fact, at the time, it was shrink-to-fit uh, Levi's, faded and, and shrunk. I don't know if you guys remember those. And then it was baby blue canvas Nikes. Of course, my mom was looking around, and she finds some bargain deal on some cheapo pair of shoes and brings them home like, no way. I have to have baby blue canvas Nikes with Levi's shrink to fits. And then it was an Izod. If you had an alligator you know, on, the, uh, on your shirt, then you were, you were part of the culture. You were an accepted dimension. And technically, there were certain ones that would actually turn their collar up. <laughs> and if you had, I mean, just think about this package. I mean, just think about how attractive it is. Baby blue canvas Nikes. It's like canvas with a light blue swish on the side. And you sort of have those in the sunshine. And then you have your Levi's shrink to fits. Then you have your eyes odd. And if you're really bold in the culture, whew, you tip up the collar and you have a little struts around the playground. If you don't behave this way, you're on the outside. You're not accepted in the group. And those that are young, feel this. And oftentimes parents have no idea. They send their kid off and like, come on, just you know, wear these and you'll be fine. Why, what's the big deal? They're cheaper. It's a good deal. Just tell your, tell your friends that they were a good deal. <laughs> so the spoken or unspoken rules of the cult or group, that which defines proper behavior in and amongst the mind-controlled yes-men. Can you think of anyone more mind-controlled than a junior hire in public school? I tell you what, they are completely being controlled by a culture to the point where the, their parents oftentimes lose the ability even to speak to them. Their culture even says your parents have nothing good to say to you when you come home tonight, ignore them. If they ever tell you this, yeah, that's typical parents. Don't even listen to them. It's embarrassing to have parents. Never even be seen with your parents. This is like what we've grown up around. Many of you came out of this. And so you're clucking your tongues at these yes men out there going, oh, how ridiculous. Meanwhile, you still have that yes man inside of you. You need to purge it out. You are not a yes man to any other voice, to any other culture, but one. 
Illustrations of this yes-men or yes-man phenomenon. A quick study in the power of culture. We're just going to go through a little history study here. 331 BC, Alexander the Great, Macedonia. As a way of making his point to a king unwilling to surrender, as legend has it, because I have no proof of this, I even tried to find it and I can't find the proof, but as legend has it, Alexander demonstrated his absolute mastery over his troops by having his choicest troops walk off the edge of a cliff one by one unto their death. Without hesitation, without question, they obeyed. Whoa, that's, that's some pretty heavy-duty uh, yes-man control there. And it's quite a phenomenon. The man took over the world with that control. 1810, Shaka Zulu, king of the Zulu nation, Africa. As legend has it, he held absolute sway over his odd soldiers. They would obey him without question, even leaping off cliffs to their deaths if commanded. Who does that? Who would ever do that? Well, I just gave you two illustrations. Let's keep going. 1934, Adolf Hitler, leader and chancellor of the Reich, Germany. Often considered the most evil man in world history, this man controlled the reality of countless millions of Germans in the years prior and during World War II. He convinced them that they were a superior race, convinced them to exterminate millions of men, women, and children in the most beastly fashion. He proved to be of inferior, who pro, I'm sorry, he, he killed these people who proved to be of inferior lineage, namely the Jews, and commanded over five million German soldiers of his own to their death in the deadly pursuit of Hitler's agenda to take over the world. Over five million of his own soldiers went to their death fighting for his cause. What he wanted. When he was heeding the voice, they were heeding him. That's quite extraordinary. The tens of millions of people that died because of this one singular man's control is astounding. 1978, Jim Jones. Religious leader, just in case you don't know. Jonestown, British Guyana, at a remote South American compound surrounded by armed guards and prohibiting the entrance and exit of any of its 1,000 members, this strangely magnetic and charismatic leader had so influenced his followers to trust his word that when he asked them to drink poisoned Kool-Aid, they do. 900 people willingly die at his command. Cuckoo! <laughs> and yet how many of us Follow sin the exact same way. Don't you realize that if you do that, you're going to die? And what do we do? We chug it anyways. It's like, look, I like my master. I trust him. I trust that he knows what he's doing in my life. If he says, feel good, I trust that he, he knows what he's talking about because I feel good every time. I mean, he always gives me what I'm asking for and what he says he's going to promise me. I, I trust my relationship with sin, with the flesh, with the devil. And as a result, we die, and we're no different than that. This story is extremely haunting to many of us, even when you hear it. It's just like, wow, and there's a lot more to it. This is a closed compound in South America because he's under pressure in the United States. He came from San Francisco, and he had tens of thousands of followers there, and only about 1,000 followed him to South America. And then one of the politicians from America, from uh, San Francisco, actually came down to investigate because so many family members back in San Francisco were crying out saying, you can't just do nothing. So he went down there and a whole bunch of people came up to him from the combine and said, take me with you. Get me out of here. And so he tried to get some of them out and Jim Jones took his men and shot this politician dead before he got on the plane. That was before this. This is 
seriously, diabolically bad stuff. We don't want to follow Jim Jones. 2014, whoa, present day? Uh-huh. Kim Jong-un, supreme leader of North Korea. Kim Jong-un, as the current residing power of the country, is worshipped as a god. The 70 million North Koreans, unable to hear anything outside the disinformation of their own country's bizarre media, have been made into mind-controlled yes-men, truly convinced that whatever they are told is true, and that to suffer and die for their master, Kim Jong-un, is the highest form of virtue. They're convinced of it. They are going to be rewarded in the next life if they heed this man's counsel. But you'll begin to realize the impact of when a man takes a position that he is not supposed to take. And when we, as the followers, heed to a man in a position that he should not have. Yes, leadership is actually a part and parcel of how life is built. And without it, we crumble. Anarchy is not a better solution. We must need government, rulership, leadership. We need parents. We need pastors. These are important factors in a healthy working order. But we must understand that when you submit to man in an unhealthy way, you are actually submitting to the wrong culture. You're submitting to something that will kill instead of bring life. We can respect, we can honor, we can show a great deal of love and kindness towards those that are put over us. And it does not mean we do not listen to them. It's that we must listen to something always higher than any man. And we must test whatever any man or woman would say to us against something higher. And if that man or that woman, whether it's wittingly or not, ever violates or goes against that higher rule, that higher truth, it is our responsibility not to kowtow and to just placate and say, I just want peace at all costs. We must make appeals. There is a proper process, which we're not going to walk through in great depth today, but I just want to at least give you the heads up. So man possession, Adolf Hitler, Jim Jones, versus God possession, Christianity. I'm going to give you an illustration of something. It's going to sound strangely similar to everything I just read, and yet it's completely different. I just read through all these men that literally their followers were willing to walk off cliffs for them. Jump off cliffs for Shaka Zulu. Go into battle and die for a cause for Adolf Hitler. Drink Kool-Aid. I mean, what's wrong with these people? And what do you think people say about Christians? What's wrong with these people? AD 33, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jerusalem, Israel. A man named Jesus Christ commissions his followers. I capitalize his just so you don't miss it. We're not just talking about a mere man. His followers. He tells them to go into all the world and speak a message that if they truly speak it, will get them tortured and killed. This band of followers trusts his word implicitly. He tells them how they ought to speak. They don't question his words. They just do it. He tells them how they ought to behave. They don't question it. They just do it. He tells them how they ought to think. Without question, they obey. Is this appropriate? Without question, they obey. And when he sends them forth without hesitation, without question, they go. And each one of them is summarily tortured and exiled or killed. They walked off a cliff. This doesn't sound healthy, does it? That's Christian history. 
So before you come to a quick conclusion on those that are willing to do extreme things in heeding the word of their commander, just make sure you understand how the construct of Christianity is built. It is built on the premise of what is known as obedience. In fact, we could even be a little more extreme and say instant, unquestioning obedience to the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of heaven. The purchased. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Did you know that you are actually possessed? I know that sounds terrible. It's just the wrong word. Because if you say that you're possessed, that means of a devil. However, did you know that you're possessed means you're owned? That's what possession means. It means you're owned. You're a property of someone. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus Christ purchased us. We belong to him. We are his possession. We are possessed, I know it just is a funny way of saying it, by Jesus Christ. Or do you not know, says Paul, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You don't belong to you. You are not your own. You're not the, the, the owner of the estate. He is. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Look at that last word. There's an apostrophe S, which means possessive. Your body and your spirit belong to him. He says, mine. And so therefore, we turn over this body to its rightful possessor. And that's Christianity. I know it might seem a little strange in the context. Here we are bringing up Jim Jones and Adolf Hitler that's the perversion. When Satan gets his grubby paws on this dimension of how you work as a human, what does it turn out like? Disaster, death, extermination, concentration camps, Kool-Aid. It's a bad scene. But what happens when God gets his hands on it? What happens when he gets his hands on you? What happens when we become his church and he becomes the head? How do we behave? It's life. It's heaven even here now. I can personally testify, I love life. Full of such joy. Why? Well, because God has gained his possession. And he takes very, very good care of it. The yes man named Andrew. One of my favorite stories in Christian history. Andrew, the brother of Peter, the disciple of Jesus Christ. He was a yes man. And I'll just bluntly say it. He was a very good one. He is sat before the governor, Aegeus, and Aegeus is making his statement to Andrew, attempting to intimidate him. Remember, Aegeus was the governor of a culture, and so he's wielding all the sway that he has as the governor of a culture to bring fear and trepidation, self-protectiveness, self-preservation into the mindset of Andrew. And he says, if you don't stop preaching about this Jesus and about this cross, I'm going to crucify you on one too. And Andrew's response of course, ruled not by Aegeus, but by Jesus. He says, I would have dared not have preached the glory of the cross of Christ if I was not first willing to die upon it. And so Governor Aegeus, fuming mad, takes him out to be crucified. Andrew could have gotten out of this. All he had to say was, yes, sir. That's all he had to say. Yes, sir, unto Governor Aegeus. It's not that hard, Andrew. Come on. Instead, who did he say yes, sir, to? To Jesus. 
He said, yes, sir. Governor, sorry to disappoint you that your culture uh, taunting and your culture sway over me is not working, but I serve one. And I would have dared not have preached the glory of this cross if I was not first willing to die on it for my commander. So do your best. So he takes him out and straps him to an X cross. So two beams of wood tied like an X. So the symbol of Andrew throughout Christian history is an X. And Andrew hung up there for three days. In absolute agony, every one of his bones out of joint, the whole while he preached the gospel for three straight days. Talk about rubbing it in. It's like, well, you stick me up here, give me an audience. What a great opportunity. The saints of God didn't want to lose Andrew, and so they actually went in to plead after three days for his life to be brought down. Look, he's paid his time. He's just not dying. Could you take him down? When Andrew heard that they were trying to get him down off the cross, he cried out to heaven. What a moment. Jesus, I've spent my time among men. All I want is to be home with you. And that's how he left earth. Whoa, a yes man. He would only do the beckoning, the will, the command of Jesus Christ. Culture. Well, there's another word for it, a good psychological word. This isn't a biblical word, just to remind you. A.K.A. groupthink. It's a psychological term invented in 1972. Very, very bad thing. If you have groupthink, well, it's terrible. So groupthink, it's a psychological phenomenon that occurs within certain groups of people in which the power of conformity overrules the native instinct to examine the outcome of such behavior. Well, if I did that, then that would lead to this. Well, you don't think that way. You actually just say, this is the way this culture works, and I don't care what it costs me, I'm going to fit in. Now, what's funny is when you hear that in light of the Jim Jones, in light of the Adolf Hitler, all that, this is horrible. However, begin to think about it in light of the kingdom of heaven. We come into a kingdom, and suddenly we stop evaluating what the consequence would be. And we say, I just want to be where he is. I want to be here. I want to be with my king. I want to be with the body of Christ. I don't care what it costs me. I want to be here. In other words, when humans submit to the influence of something, a power, a group, a man, etc., outside of themselves, and heed whatever that influence says, even to their own harm. And we'd be like, that is terrible. Yeah, and most of what pops into our mind, I would agree, it is terrible. So we'll call it the unthinkable, group think. This is the unthinkable. Imagine someone doing this. When the weight of a personality or a specific person or group of persons outweighs the weight of personal dangers. So say it's the opinion of uh, Jim Jones. Say it's the opinion of Adolf Hitler. Say it's the opinion of your boss. Whatever it may be, that that opinion is so important for you to maintain a good reputation with it, to maintain a good rapport with it, that you don't care that it's going to literally put you in jail to sign that paperwork and to turn in those documents. You don't even care because you value that relationship so highly and you fear ever falling on the bad side of that personality. And so as a result, it's called groupthink. You are actually doing what most people would say is unthinkable. You are literally killing yourself and your own future to serve them? Why would you do that? Alexander the Great's a mere man. Shaka Zulu's a mere man. Adolf Hitler's a mere man. Kim Jong-un is just a mere man. Why would you ever do that? Sell your soul, destroy your life for them? It's a good question. So I call this the power of groupthink. 
Now, look at, we're saying that the personality, which could be an individual man, or it could be a culture, outweighs the outcome. Peer pressure, right here. How many of us have violated what our parents taught us all growing up, and because of our desire to fit into the group, the personality, the culture, we did not consider the outcome as important as fitting in. And this is called groupthink where a group begins to do your thinking for you and you lose the ability to say no. And so as a result, you are saying yes. But what if that personality is Jesus? You know that this is a picture of Christianity right here? Have you ever met Jesus? (laughs) If you meet Jesus, you'll understand. There's no one more beautiful, no one more perfect, no one more able, No one more holy. And when you see him, basically you lay your life down and you say, I don't care about outcome. I don't care if they throw me in prison. I don't care if they feed me to the wild beasts in the arena. I want you. And as a result, the personality outweighs the outcome. You must do the unthinkable. What a funny statement. We're calling it the unthinkable and yet every single one of you is going to do the unthinkable. You know that if any of you ever in this room have ever given your life so fully and wholly to Jesus Christ and your family back home doesn't quite understand it, what do they say? They did the unthinkable. They just gave their life radically to Jesus Christ. And they're not just like one of those churchgoers. They're one of the radical ones, you know, wild hair and leather and girdle. (laughs) So which group will you choose to think like? There's a culture of this world And there's a culture of heaven. Which group are you going to choose to think like? You're going to think like one of them. You're not just some autonomous lone ranger that has your own brand of philosophy out there. That's called living in sin. You're either with Jesus or you're with the world. You pick. Which one? Which one do you want to think like? There will come a time when they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Speaking of the Pharisees, the Pharisees in the Jewish culture worked with groupthink. It was a yes-man society. There was a politically correct and a religious correct in Israel when Jesus arrived. And Jesus himself is warning saying there will come a time where they will put you out of the synagogues. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is being put out of the synagogue. That is the equivalent of being branded in a culture as the worst possible thing. The worst criminal, whether it be a leper or in our culture some like child molester. Whatever it would be, it would be the worst possible stigma. And there will come a time, Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. You see, when you are caught up in any other man-built notion, instead of a God-driven, biblically-centered notion, you will actually think you're doing God a service. You know that the North Koreans would think that they are doing God a service by killing you in cold blood. They would. That's a disturbed mentality. And the Pharisees, guess who the Pharisees killed? Well, they killed Jesus. And they killed a whole bunch of others of his followers. Jesus was right. And they thought they were doing God a service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. 
the sway of the Pharisees. Just because it quotes scripture does not mean that it is from heaven. And this is one of the most important principles I want to begin to layer into this. You're in an environment with a leader who is bold, who is strong. I do know what I believe, and I do say it forcibly. I want you to be very watchful to not just take things that I preach as if it is gospel because it was said, said loudly, said forcibly. I want you to learn to be one who goes to the word of God and is always testing, always. Not that I think I'm wrong and I'm misleading you. However, I do not want to create the wrong sort of yes man culture. I want this to be an environment where we all say yes unto Jesus Christ, whatever that is. And I want you to heed him at all costs. So the sway of the Pharisees, just because it quotes scripture does not mean it's from heaven. What a statement. You know that Satan's quoted scripture? Isn't that a funny thought? That means you can quote scripture without the spirit of God enabling you to quote it? Yeah, I guess so. You see, Satan, when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, brings up Psalm 91. And Jesus had to correct Satan on how he was quoting. He was misquoting it, which is a famous way that the enemy will quote. So a religious culture, this is the Pharisees, a religious culture that stands against the heavenly culture. The group think that opposes the heavenly mind. The yes men that battle against the prototypical and perfect yes man. And they actually kill them. The amazing power of the fear of man. Have you ever noticed that the fear of man is one thick fog for our soul? I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing. You've never felt so much a coward. It's when it comes to the time when you're in a big group and Christianity is not very popular in that group and someone makes fun of Christianity. Sort of like, yeah, are you any of you in here along with that weird way of thinking? Well, that's not when any of us really wants to stand up and go, yeah, I'm with that weird way of thinking. There's a fear of the group. The group can easily control and keep us silent. And that's what was happening back in the days of the Pharisees. Just look at this. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Then came his disciples and said unto him, so his disciples are coming up to Jesus, and they're saying, knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Do you imagine Jesus going, they were They were offended? Oh, no, they might put me out of the synagogue then. It's interesting, but Jesus models something perfectly. He models the fear of God. He models a complete placidity, a calmness of soul in the midst of public disapproval. He doesn't seem to care. In fact, he does things seemingly purposely to antagonize them. It's like, Jesus, this is the Sabbath. Why don't you just keep it on the down low today? Instead, he goes out and heals the guy right in front of them. It's like, that was just a big mistake. Now they're all riled up and seeking to kill him. We could have done this better, Jesus. And yet he's making a point. He's showing that he is ruled by another culture. He is ruled by another mind. He does what his father is doing. He doesn't ask, well, that's going to cost me, father. Well, he's weighing the hazards of it. That could lead me to a cross. I could end up in Gethsemane sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Have you ever seen those cats of nine tails that the Romans are lugging around right now? That would strip the flesh right off my body. We have to think this through, God. Jesus doesn't weigh those things. He says, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So this man that is born blind is healed. 
And this is the story that follows. His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. So they've been brought before the Sanhedrin. They're being brought before the religious culture of the day, the controlling powers who are, have a disapproving glance at this. We've got a man born blind and they want to know how he was healed because this is turning everything into a tumult. All society's in a ruffle. What's happening here? So his parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we know not. You see, what are they doing? They're placating. They're saying what the, what the, the religious culture wants them to hear. We, we don't know. You know what they actually did know? And I'll show that in the upcoming sentences here. They knew exactly who healed their son. It was Jesus. But if they were to say that, they would be removed from the synagogue. They can't say it. So to placate the culture, they go silent. So it says, we know not, or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. Throw him under the bus. Some great parents. <laughs> he shall speak for himself. Listen to this. These words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. You see, the culture's already spoken. Anyone who stands with Jesus is out. So where do you stand? And they'll go through each one of us, one by one. Where do you stand? Well, that's a good question. Where do you stand? There's only two options here. Yes, the moving parts and the different leaders change. Their names change. You know, Adolf Hitler and Jim Jones are a different variety, but the same demonic stronghold. The same danger lurks inside of both of them. The same design to heed a father's will that is not our father in heaven. So here we are, John 12. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him. Uh-oh, what would it be like to be in the culture and be a chief ruler in the culture and actually turn and say, Jesus is the Christ? Oh, this is going to be awkward. Let's see what happened. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Listen to this key line. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You see, they're still yes men. They believed, but they are still unwilling to give their life wholly and completely to the truth. So the definitive statement of God's yes men. We're going to change that last sentence that we just read that was the wrong and turn it into a right. For they, the true Christians, love the praise of God more than the praise of men. That's a true Christian. Oh, to hear it, the applause of God. You see, we oftentimes fall for that bait, and that is the world's opinion is all that matters. And yet there is another opinion. The problem is we can't oftentimes hear the clapping. We don't hear the, the well done, my good and faithful servant. It's silent. We don't hear it. And we so long for approval. It's a bait point for us, and the enemy knows it. I remember one of my favorite statements, maybe even in my life, even though I don't know that I've ever preached on it, is a statement from A.W. Tozer that says the gospel sets us free from the tyranny, which means the control, of public approval. I remember pondering that when I was definitely under the thumb of public approval. Because I wanted to be liked. 
I wanted people to like me and to think I was a good guy. It's like, I, uh, have you ever seen Eric? I was in Starbucks the other day, and these girls were talking behind the counter, and they were like, oh, and he has a, a, a friend named Peter. Have you met Peter? He is so nice. And this other one goes, have I, do I know Peter? I don't know, but he is so nice. This other goes, yeah, he is so nice. That's what we want to be said about us. Have you ever met Eric Ludy? Oh, he is so nice. That's right. That's right. Instead, and if any of you have traveled around my life with me, when I stepped across and was kicked out of the synagogue, suddenly it wasn't Eric is so nice. And that's hard when you're not used to it, to have someone say things about your name that aren't true, to slander you, to mock you, to abuse your reputation that has only been attempting to live uprightly. It's not, not fun. There's reasons why we stay seated. There's reasons why we say, let him speak for himself. I, I'm not going to say it. Let him say it. Oh, to hear it, the applause of God. You ever heard of that one scene described of the man who lived his life well, but it was a smallish life to the world. They never considered it. He traveled a lot and served the weak and the poor. Those that can't repay, those that don't have a lot to say in return, and those that oftentimes don't even appreciate it. But there were just you know, a smattering of people at this man's funeral. But he lived life well. And you could look around at the, those that were there, and they were sincere uh, friends, deep friends of this man who had given his life well, and they were inspired by him. But when he arrived in heaven, tens of millions stood there on their feet clapping. A man that wasn't necessarily appreciated here on this earth had lived his life for the approval of another culture. And that other culture, when he arrived, was giving him what he lacked down here. And it was an applause. And they were on their feet cheering him, just wanting to get a sight of this man who had lived so holy and so fully for the love of Jesus. And then the clapping begins to die down and the crowd is parting. And they're all looking in one direction. It's towards a singular clap that remains. And finally the crowd parts. And the man who just arrived in heaven, who's standing in awe and shock and wonder, sees Jesus. The singular clap. Tears streaming down his face. And when Jesus sees him, he sees Jesus. Jesus initiates and begins to run. And then the man starts to run too. And they embrace, and Jesus squeezes him tight and whispers in his ear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Oh, to hear it. What do you live for? What are you living for? What is your motivation? You see, we have a rough version of this. If you're a needy, insecure person, you are vulnerable to the enemy. You need God to make you strong. Because you'll go after the yes sir of this world to just fit in. But when the gospel truly gets a hold of you, it sets you free from the need to be liked. The need to have everyone pat you on the back. It's interesting, but the body of Christ is an amazing encouragement. But you begin to realize that you don't need it anymore. You could be thrown into a prison cell and abused and you technically don't need the encouragement like you always thought you did. Remember when you were growing up, you're just like, I just need my dad to say this to me. And it's true, you do need it. It's like part of your development and it's missing. But when you meet Jesus, 
All those words that weren't spoken by your father growing up, guess what? He has them for you now. And he begins to repair you. He's a father to those that didn't have a father. He's the words of encouragement to those that didn't have the words of encouragement. He repairs us. He makes us solid, strong, so that we can be in the midst of a hostile world and not bow to their agenda. Esther on Kim. Just a teacher in South Korea. But everyone is being asked to bow down to the sun god. And if they don't, they will be tortured, thrown into prison, and killed. A young girl who's nothing more than a teacher in her culture walks up and every single person bows. And she turns heavenward. And she stares up to her king. Whoa! Who does that? Christian. The ovation for Stephen. Stephen stood against that pharisaical, we'll kick you out of the synagogue, in fact, we'll make it worse for you, we'll crucify you, or in this case, stone you. They were so upset. They were covering their ears, and this is what the culture will do. There is two cultures, and they're at enmity one with the other. Flesh, spirit. And they hate to hear it when you say yes, sir, to your king right in front of them. It is an indictment to their souls. And they scream and they run at you with ears plugged, pick up rocks and want to kill you. And what does Stephen see in this situation? The heavens open and he sees Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? Standing. That's a one time in scripture it's mentioned. He's standing at the right hand of the Father. My mental picture is he rises up. Standing ovation for Stephen. Oh, to see it, to know it. That's what we live for. If you know Jesus, that's all that moves you. That's all you care about. When you don't know Jesus, it's a laughingstock. It's ridiculous. We might as well be talking about Adolf Hitler or Jim Jones. We don't see why anyone would do that, why anyone would follow such a leader. They don't know Jesus. I can't figure out why anyone would follow Adolf Hitler or Jim Jones, to be honest. But I do understand why people follow Jesus. For the love of their king, they said yes. Jesus said, Peter, I need you to be crucified upside down. Peter said, yes, Lord. Jesus, Andrew, I need you to be tied mercilessly to two beams of wood and left to hang to death for three days. Andrew, yes, Lord. Paul, I need you to be beheaded. Yes, Lord. Stephen, I need you to be stoned. Yes, Lord. Philip, I need you to be crucified. Yes, Lord. Matthew, I need you to be slain with the sword. Yes, Lord. James, the brother of Jesus, I need you to be stoned and clubbed to death. Yes, Lord. Matthias, I need you to be stoned and beheaded. Yes, Lord. Mark, I need you to be dragged behind a chariot to pieces. Yes, Lord. Jude, I need you to be crucified. Yes, Lord. Bartholomew, I need you to be cruelly beaten and then crucified. Yes, Lord. Thomas, I need you to be thrust through with a spear. Yes, Lord. Luke, I need you to be hung. Yes, Lord. John, I need you to be thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil. Yes, Lord. That's history. The yes men of history passed. That's how they lived. Why? You ever heard the statement? I don't know if I've said it for quite a few semesters. I was reading a book called Martyrs' Mirrors, written in the 1500s. It's all the collection of all the, all the martyrdoms throughout Christian history. And there was this little footnote that talked about Peter. And it said that it was, Peter was often noted to cry. And the saints didn't know why he would cry. And every now and then a cock would crow and he'd break down and cry. And that made sense then. But there were other times 
when this big hulking fisherman would just break down and cry. Huge man, and yet he would sob. And so finally, one of these saints got up the guts to come up to Peter and say, Peter, uh, why do you cry? And his response was, desiderio domini, which in the Latin would translate to, because I dearly long to be with my Lord. Is that in you? Desiderio domini. I dearly long to be with Jesus. I dearly long, please. I just want to be with you. I want to serve you. Whatever it takes to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If he asks you to walk into a prison cell and be tortured to death, hey, I get to go home. And all the other Christians are like, how come he gets to go home? And you smile as you go in, yes! You get to go home! Your time has come! Saints in early Christianity, they actually had a problem, and that was they were initiating their own martyrdom. Every single one of them wanted to die a martyr. That the church fathers had to issue an edict to say, hey, guys, God also wants you to live for him, not just die. We're the exact opposite today. We're yes men to ourself and to our own drive and our own desires and our own fleshly impulses. We crave self-comfort and self-preservation. As a result, we can't see the beauty. We don't understand what it means to live in the heavenly culture. In Scripture, it's not called a yes man. It's called a bond servant. It's a servant that is set free. But because of his love for his master, it's love that makes a bond servant. Not fear, not lust, not greed. Love that makes a servant of the cross. We are set free by the shed blood of Jesus. But because we love our Lord, we return to him. And we become servants for life. And so the symbol of that is we're brought up against a doorpost. And an awl pierces our ear. And there is a symbol, a ring in our ear forever. Why? Because the ear is the place where we hear the command. And what we say is, yes, I'm a yes man. I'm a bond servant. I'm bonded to my master. Whatever he says, I have an ear for him. I have an ear for my master. What we call it here at Ellerslie is the predecided yes, Lord. Before he even asks you to do something, your answer is already proven on your ear. Your answer is yes. I'm a yes man. Not to you, not to this culture, to Jesus, to his word. What he says, though it may lead to my death, my answer is, yes, Lord. He who has an ear, let him hear. Have you ever heard that statement? Jesus said it, and in Revelation it says it. He who has an ear, let him hear. Well, we all have ears. Well, what's it saying? He who has an ear pierced, an ear set apart for their master, let them hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. We are called to not be men pleasers, to please the Pharisees, but to obey as bond servants who have an ear for our master from the heart. Not from the mind to say it's the right thing to do. From the heart. We love our king. And that's the way we're supposed to live. The bond. 
It means the forever, forever bound by covenant, forever bound by love. It's a bond. It glues us together. It unites us in an inseparable bond. And that's the bond of the servant. He who has an ear, pierced. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Well, that could be the same thing for us today. Who has an ear for their master? Who has been willing to forsake that ear for this world and turn their ear and say, pierce it, Lord. I have an ear for your word and your word alone. The consecration of the yes men. In the Old Testament, the priests were being prepared to do the service of the temple. By the way, you are that temple, and technically you are that priest. Yet to do the work of the temple, they were set apart for a very special consecration ceremony, as is revealed in Exodus 29. There was a ram that was killed, a ram like Jesus. And in the blood of that ram, Aaron, the high priest, would dip his finger into that blood, the high priest, like Jesus. And he would administer that blood and smear it on the right ear of the servant. And then upon the right thumb. And then upon the right big toe. A little strange. The right side of the body, the side of strength and control. God says, this must be mine. No longer are you in control of your own life. I'm in control of it. And now you have an ear for your master. So when they were going through that consecration ceremony, the first thing that they gave was their ear, their hearing, their obedience. Yes, Lord, whatever you ask, Lord, whatever you stipulate in your law, we will do. We will carry out. We heed Jehovah. Thumb, that's control. And then they gave the thumb. Human control, no more. God control, yes. Toe, that's where you walk in life. That's where you go. Wherever you go in this life, you are owned and operated by something higher than you. You've been given a sacred trust, and that's the temple of God. Make sure you do not abuse it. You represent the king of kings. You have entered into a new culture. In that case, the Hebrew culture. The work of the bombed men. So there's a statement in the Bible that I'm just about to read that talks about the work of the bondmen. They're preserving the one mind, one spirit, and one purpose of the Christ culture. The culture of Christ has a mind. It has a purpose. It has an agenda. And everything in this other culture is dead set on disturbing it. And yet we, whereas we have leadership in our midst, we pay heed to our head, to Jesus Christ. And that is our great agenda. So Ephesians 4 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering forbearing one another in love. And listen to this. I made it big for you. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now this is uncomfortable, especially in a denominationally splintered body that we have today. And Paul over and over and over again says, hey guys, there's only one truth. There's only one culture. It's God's culture. When we get our grubby hands on it and we begin to stick man stuff into our cultures, we end up blurring the clear picture of the one. There's only one way to the Father. There's only one means of salvation. There is only one who can save you. There is only one grace by which you can live. There is only one. 
over and over and over again. And so the bondservants are given a task, and that is they are to endeavor to keep the one in focus. Do you remember who's in charge here? Not me. It's him. Do you remember what code we follow? What word we heed? Not mine. It's his. You follow me only as I follow him. If I get off the reservation, then you have to seriously question how you engage with me. He is the one we follow, and we're endeavoring to keep the bond of peace. But that bond of peace is gained by us agreeing on what is in control here. What is the truth here? It's not agreeing that one man should lead. It's agreeing that God is in charge. It's agreeing that what he has stipulated in his word is correct. And we all say, yes, Lord, to it. And when we're all saying yes to the same thing, the church of Jesus Christ functions in a supernatural fashion. So the word endeavoring, we're supposed to endeavor to keep that spirit of unity and the bond of peace. Endeavoring is a great word. It means to run after, to move your feet to quicken your pace with an impassioned desire. But if you break it down into its parts, it has all sorts of little bitty great words in it. Pus, which is a noun, means a foot. So the basic word for endeavor, remember, it's to run, it's to move swiftly, it's to move with haste towards an agenda, diligently to pursue something. Well, there's a foot in this word. But it's not just any foot. This is the type of foot of the conqueror. The conqueror's foot that sticks something under it and says, victory. That's the sort of foot we're talking about here. So this is the conqueror's foot, the foot of the vanquisher, the foot at which one submits and is taught. This is where the word footstool comes from. All things are under his feet. This is the concept of control and authority. Spudo, it's a verb. It means to make haste, to desire earnestly. And spuda, spude, haste, with haste, earnestness, diligence, focus, givenness, and drivenness. And here's our word for endeavor, spudazo. It means to hasten, to make haste, to exert oneself, endeavor, and to give diligence. And so here's my expanded uh, dictionary definition for you. This is great. To move with the conqueror's foot. So when you're moving, what do you know? God wins his battles. You're moving with a confidence that you're doing God's bidding. This is how God's culture works. We endeavor as his bondservants to carry out his agenda, and guess who's calling us to do it? The king of kings. So we move with his feet. We move with the conqueror's foot to run after with the foot of the vanquisher, to move with the termination of victory as a lion towards its prey, running upon the rock, driven forward with other, utter confidence of victory and a keen sense of untouchability. I like this concept of running upon the rock. We're not running upon sand. I remember riding my bike on sand. I got into some sand trap and flipped over when I was young. still remember it. And uh, I don't know if I knocked out a tooth in that situation, but it was a very bad crash. You know, when you get on sand, it pulls you. It isn't stable, and you can trip. You can fall or flip your bike. When you run on a rock, it's solid. And so we're running with a conqueror's foot. We're running in full assurance. What is underneath us and what is commissioning us is God Almighty. And we do not flag. We do not get tired or weary in such work. Running upon the rock, sure-footed, conqueror-footed, GOP-footed. By the way, that's not some political thing. That's gospel of peace-footed. What is, what is our feet shod with? The gospel. And so as a result, I'm not trying to make a political uh, statement there. Sure-footed, conqueror-footed, gop-footed to keep the unity of the spirit. That's what we're doing, to keep the unity of the spirit. 
We have a job to do in the saints. Everything in this other culture wants to crucify Jesus. Everything wants to disturb what we have going on here. Everything is against it. The enemy wants by subtlety or craft to destroy the saints of God. But we must endeavor to be yes men. To be focused on the word of God. To understand his will. To know what his mind is in every situation. So that we can preserve this unity. Be of the same mind one toward another. How are you supposed to do that? Have you ever seen how denominations work? The word same means atas. Again, the same. Verbatim. Ditto. Repeat. To bear similar witness. Likewise. Exactly. Immutable. Without change or difference. To profess the same opinion together and in one accord. That's how the body of Christ is supposed to function. Where any one of us could say something and everyone else says ditto. Except the way we say it is amen. We are saying the same thing. We believe the same thing. We understand the same thing. But most of us don't even believe it's possible. But it has to do with who we are receiving our command from. Are you getting a philosophy of this earth or are you taking it straight from the word of God? Who is the captain and the chief architect of the church? He does not breed division and faction within his body. If he is in control, we will have an autos mind. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. How do you do that? Does Paul not understand what denominationalism is? You can't do that. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's the same mind as Christ. You see, it's not that I'm supposed to have the same mind with you, even though I am. It's that I'm supposed to arm myself with the same mind. Whose mind? Should it be Eric's mind? How are we going to pick who has the, the template mind here? It's like, well, since I'm the pastor, we're going to use my mind. Okay, so my mind is right, and anywhere you disagree with me, you're wrong. That would be one way of doing it. I sort of like it. No, that leads to the toilet. That's what destroys the church of Jesus Christ. We don't use my mind or yours. You just happen to be a little more intellectual. I'm like, all right, all right, your mind now. It's Christ's mind, which is revealed in the word of God. You see, we are all tuned to the same, by the same tuning fork. We're all different instruments, but we can play in perfect harmony. And though I may be a lute and you may be a harp, we can be tuned to the same tuning fork. And as a result, when we play, we both say, that sounds good. That's right. Amen. Ditto. And we play our little tune on the lute, and they go, oh, and they play theirs. And we're like, yeah. And we start dancing a little Hebrew dance. What is <laughs> Fulfill you my joy that, be, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Whose mind? Whose mind are we going to choose? We choose the mind of Christ. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. The one mind. Are we going to actually humble ourselves to accept the fact that we all have one mind? That we're going to think like one gigantic organism and it's going to be groupthink. And yeah, whatever the group thinks, that's what I'm going to think too. I'm never going to stand against it. It's not my mind. It's not someone else's mind in here. It's his mind. 
And technically, as maybe unattractive as this may sound in our politically correct culture, to say that we as Christians have one mind, we do. But it's not ours. It's his. It's not Hitler's. It's not Jim Jones's mind. I don't care what they have to say on anything. I care what Jesus has to say on the matter. And when he says it, bow my knee and say, yes, Lord. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Christian group think, is that what we have? Well, we wouldn't use the term. It's a very ugly term, but sort of. Simply put, we believe our God. All of us do. And you could say, are you all going to just come to the same conclusion that you all believe God? Yes. That'd be sort of strange, wouldn't it? It's like one of you in here is like, no, you know, I'd like to be a Christian, but I don't believe God. Well, that doesn't work. You see, but it's not cultural pressure, like group pressure, like you better believe God. It's just what unites us. We all are fixed on the same point, and as a result, we have the same mind. We all believe God. We believe his word. Yeah, that's right. He's like, what are you, indoctrinating these people to just believe this thing? The Spirit of God, I guess, is indoctrinating us all because we all believe the Word of God is, in fact, the Word of God. We believe what His Word says about Jesus. So as a result, we believe that Jesus is God. All of you? All of you believe that Jesus is God? Yep. Is it because we were forced into this? We have the same Spirit that is administering the same truth from the same Word. And as a result, we have one mind. We believe that at the cross of Jesus, sin, death, and the devil, and the power of the flesh-driven old man were defeated. All of you believe that? It's what the Bible says, and all of us agree that that is the word of God. We believe that Jesus has accomplished the work that is necessary to set us free from the control of the devil and to move us under his loving control. We believe that faith in Jesus is the only means of accessing the salvation offered at the cross. We believe that grace administered by the indwelling spirit of God is the only means by which we can live out the triumphant life of Jesus. We believe that the glory of our precious King Jesus is our ultimate goal. Every single one of you is after the glory of Jesus? Come on, get some original thinking in here. Don't you have anyone that's willing to buck the system and challenge it? Well, that's just how our culture works. God says it. We say, yes, sir. And it's not because we're brainless. We have the ultimate brain, if you will. We have Jesus. We have the mind of God Almighty, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who knows how a human is supposed to function. We're not idiots, though we be deemed it. We actually have the greatest wisdom and the greatest knowledge. We have the greatest connection with that which truly thinks right thoughts in all the universe. We believe that the Holy Spirit is his earnest, given un- us until he returns for us someday soon. Yes, he will return. And all of us agree? All of us just have one mind on that matter? Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The Spirit and the bride say the same thing. All of us? We're just like going to agree on that? I want to have my own prayer. I don't want to just buy into the prayer of the Spirit and the rest of the bride. I want to be my own guy, a lone ranger. Well, that's not how the body of Christ works. You see, this hand, if it went rogue on this body, wouldn't be helping very much. It would be sort of strange, sort of creeping around, and you get, it would be turned into some horror movie, too. All you like, ah. <laughs> the body is meant to participate in one singular purpose that the head dictates in this body. 
And when the head says to this hand, do this, the hand says, yes, sir, though it may get burned in the process. You see, this body is in agreement of the same mind. So as a result, we function as one. And we endeavor to preserve this same mind in and amongst the saints of God. That's what we do. When someone comes in and starts to question the deity of Jesus, what do we do? We endeavor to maintain the same mind. You see, anything that will contradict the head and the culture in which we live is very serious to us. But it's God's culture. It's not man's. This is something he is building. It's not us that builds the church. It's him that does it. You guys see why this is sort of a challenging message to touch on? Saying yes to Jesus. To say yes is to love him. To love him is to obey him. And to obey him is to walk just as he walked in this earth. So we'll finish with 1 John 2. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. How will you know that you know him if you say yes to him? He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, whoever says, yes, Lord, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So if you love him, you will obey him. And if you obey him, you will walk as he walked. Your life will testify of the one mind, the one spirit, and the one purpose of his body. You will function just as he did. He's the body of Christ when he was here. And now we are his body. And we do what he did. He tells us what to do, and we do it. Whereas we may not want the title yes men to be attached to us as the church, group think to be attached to us, we say yes to our Lord. And we say yes even before he asks. But not because of a sense of duty or a sense of fear in the body that we'll be kicked out if we don't, but because we love him. And because we all love the same God, we get along great together. Oh, you love Jesus too? And even though we have differences, we might smell different, look different, come from different cultures, like different foods, like different football teams, and yet, we all can work together with one mind. And we have a culture that doesn't fear being booted out, but fears him. We all love the same, Jesus. And that's what unites us. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.